Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Leadership is tough today, so getting the best out of people all around you with limited time and with people who often think and react differently than you expected, well, it's a lifelong journey in my opinion and one that takes constant adjustment. There are some principles, though, that we find are going to make a difference, and if they become part of your daily practice, then we believe you're going to be more successful, and that's the focus for today. Some simple truths, straightforward, immediately actionable, and that have survived the test of time, all from two well-known leadership gurus. So my guest today is Ken Blanchard and Randy Connolly. Ken and Randy are co-author of a new book called The Simple Truths of Leadership, and you can learn more at their website, simpletruthsofleadership.com. Ken Blanchard is one of the world's most influential leadership experts. He's a co-author of more than 65 books, including the iconic and highly recommended The One Minute Manager, which has a combined sales of over 23 million copies in 47 languages. And in 2005, he was inducted into Amazon's Hall of Fame as one of the top 25 best-selling authors of all time. He's a co-founder of the Ken Blanchard's company, a leading international training and consulting company. And if that's not enough, Randy Connolly, his co-author on this book, is vice president of global professional services and trust practice leader for the Ken Blanchard companies. He's a founding member of the Alliance of Trustworthy Business Experts. And Inc.com named him a top 100 leadership speaker. Randy's contributing author on three books, including Leading at a Higher Level with Ken Blanchard. And Randy's award-winning blog, Leading with Trust, has influenced over 4 million viewers since its inception in 2012. I think that constitutes both of you as being brilliant leadership gurus. So welcome to the show. <laughs> Our mothers wrote both of those uh, reviews. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll take the word brilliant. Thank you, Wanda. I, I love it. Well, if only my mother would write such kind things, Ken, we'd be in a different league. No, I'm joking about that one there. You've both accomplished an awful lot. You, you've written I mean, you 60-some books, Randy, several books, your name. Why this book? Why now? Well, Wanda, I've, uh, in my mission statement, I say I want to be a loving teacher and example of simple truth. So I've always been looking at how do we simplify things? The one minute manager had three simple secrets and all. And so I just recently <coughs> celebrated the 62nd anniversary of my 21st birthday. And so I said, <laughs> what's the legacy I want to leave? Mm-hmm. And it's really about simple truths and pulling together all the things that we've been teaching over the years. And uh, I've become a big fan of servant leadership. And Randy and I, as we talked, servant leaders build trust. And trust and servant leadership go together. How do you always say, Randy? (laughs) Yeah, trust and servant leadership go together like peanut butter and jelly. And uh, (laughs) so we we had been talking about this for a number of years. And uh, I've worked with Ken for over 25 years. And, of course, he's one of my leadership mentors, life mentors, and uh, I follow his passion for 
making the complex truths of leadership, distilling them into, you know, common sense, practical principles. And so uh, we just had a real joy working on this together and uh, wanted to make a little dent in the universe, help spread the message of serving others and building trust as, as the keys to being a successful leader. It's, um, I was speaking with someone today, and we were talking about the challenges in his business of leading and developing, and both of us were saying that it really does feel like, particularly at this moment in time, we get need to get back to some basic principles. Mm-hmm. that we sort of, seems like we've forgotten some basics that need some revival. So one of the things I love about this book is the simplicity and yet the real truth of those simplicities. Now, before I go into those, I have to ask about servant leadership. You know, one of the things I think we do in this whole management leadership world is we have great labels for things and no clue what we're talking about when we give those labels. <laughs> so what do you mean by servant leadership? What is it a servant leader does that's distinctive? Well, Wanda, when I mentioned servant leadership in a lot of places, they think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison or trying <laughs> to please everybody or a religious movement. They don't understand there's two parts of servant leadership. The leadership part is about vision, direction, values, and goals, because leadership is about going somewhere. And that's the responsibility of the hierarchy. It doesn't mean you don't involve people in there. But if people don't understand what they're being asked to do and what good behavior looks like, shame on you because it's your responsibility. Once that's clear, and that's the results part of, of the focus, now you turn the pyramid upside down and you get to the servant part of servant leadership. And now you work for your people. Your job is to help them win, help them live according to the vision and values and accomplish their goals. And so it's the only way, and this is one of our basic, simple truths. It's the only way that we know to get both great results and great people. And how do you deal with that, Randy, in your your sessions? I think that the audience would love to hear that. Yeah, as Ken was saying, you know, servant leaders and servant leadership is really the only way we know to get both great results and great relationships. And so when I'm working with groups, I'll often write on a flip chart or put up on the whiteboard three words, results and relationships. And I'll ask the group, what do you think of these three words is the most important for being a leader? And of course, as you would expect, right, about half the crowd says results. That's what we're in business for. We got to hit the numbers. And the other half says, well, you know, if we don't have good relationships, we're not going to get results. And there's always a few that say, I think the word and is the most important. And I'm like, yes, it's the power of the and, right? Servant leadership is not this warm, fuzzy, let's make sure everybody feels great about themselves. You know, it's both results and relationships. And um, it's really the power of the and. And so, you know, really, like you said, Wanda, we're great at putting labels on things. Servant leadership, what's it about? Being of service to others and accomplishing the goals of the organization. Who wouldn't want that, right, for their organization? Right, right. I do think that people miss the and. Mm -hmm. So I see leaders who focus on the results and they're going to push pretty hard and they're going to have some tight control mechanisms and some hard feedback and pressures and that sort of behavior. 
And I see people who emphasize the relationships, which are going to get a little soft on the performance and a little soft on the stretch goals and a little soft on the delivery and timeframe and so on. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a little soft on the customer delivery side, sometimes the other way around. But you put those two together and that's what you would really ideally want in any given leader. Okay. So, and I always say to people, the job of leadership is to build, you have to set boundary conditions for people. You put that much more eloquently by saying vision, direction, values, and goals. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, those are boundary conditions. You can't let people go off the reservation. There has to be sort of a a bit of a swim lane and then some freedom in that to figure out how to, how to go from there. Okay. One of our favorite sayings, Wanda, is a river without banks is a large puddle. (laughs) So you need the banks and the leadership part of servant leadership is the banks, the vision, direction, values, and goals. Yeah, that's the counterintuitive aspect. You know, one of our simple truths is create autonomy through boundaries, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a little paradoxical. It's like, well, wait, don't boundaries like hem people in, you know, keep them in a box. No, when when people know what the boundaries are, within those boundaries, you're free to innovate and be creative and right. Yeah. Go to the max. But the boundaries provide some structure because we've got to channel everybody's energy and efforts in a common direction, you know, where the organization needs to go. Um, so it's, you know, like in most things in life and in leadership, it's the balance, right? It's balance. Uh, of, of getting both sides of the equation working. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. I am, I believe great leadership is about balancing the polar opposite ends of two spectrums and there are multiple spectrums out there to consider and relationships and results are just one component. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dig into the practices. So one of the things that I love about this book is that there are 52 practices conveniently one a week. And I think for anybody out there, I think this kind of something you said to me earlier is the notion that you could pick one of these a week, read it, think about it, practice it, talk about it, talk with your team about it next week, pick the next one and just systematically go through a year of development and leadership one week at a time. I think it's a really clever idea. So I really like that. And I like how easy the book is to read. So what I want to do is focus on a couple of the truths that stuck out to me. I have several of them that I'm particularly fond of, but let's start with a few of them. And and for each of these, I want to know, what do you mean by this phrase? What does it look like in practice? Give me an example. And why does this work? So the first one I want to pick on is number five, which says, catch people doing something right. Okay. I think it's important for people to understand that the left-hand side has the concept of the page like the key to developing people is to catch up doing something right. Then the right-hand side talks about the concept. And at the bottom of the page, it always says how to make common sense, common practice. Mm -hmm. And so with uh, catching people doing things right, uh, people have often said to me, Ken, if I took everything away you've been teaching for 40 years, what's one concept you'd hang on to? This is the one. It's the second secret of the one-minute manager because most people, when they think they see their boss or their manager coming, they think they've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. Where what, what this whole concept is, is you ought to wander around and see if you can catch people doing things right. And to do that, you have to set clear goals that you both agree upon at, at the beginning, but say, gee, I noticed things are going really well in this uh, 
area. And I just want to say, add a girl, add a boy, you know, and people just are not used to that, but they love it. You know, uh, people just love to get caught doing things right and uh, to be uh, uh, praised. Well, we know from animal psychology, if I take it back to its very basic, that the best way to train an animal was with positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. It's not with punishment. But as human beings, we seem to pretend that we don't work the same way for some reason. And so yeah. we focus all on the <laughs> negatives as opposed uh-huh. to the positives. Randy, you were going to say something, I think, too, on this one. Oh, I, I just building on what you said there, Wanda, you know, when I'm working with groups, I'll often ask people, you know, raise your hand if you are just sick and tired of all the praise you're getting on the job, right? <laughs> Nobody ever raises their hand. And it's just so silly. You know, like you said, Wanda, positive reinforcement breeds more of the same behavior. But yeah. for some reason in the workplace, we seem to think that we got to catch people doing something wrong. That's the way to correct performance is point out what's going wrong so that they'll then do the right thing. Um, doesn't make sense. Well, and it doesn't work. I mm-hmm. mean, we know that from a human motivation point of view, it doesn't work mm-hmm. from an animal motivation point of view. It doesn't work. You want to find people even approximating something that's right, reinforce yep. it, and they'll do more of it. And so catch people doing something right. I love it. Practice number five. All right, let's go to practice number nine. And I'm going to misquote it here. Different strokes for different folks. What does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, that comes from our SL2, which is our situational approach to effective leadership. Because what we have found is that it's stupid to use the same leadership style with everybody because people are different levels of development in terms of their competence and their commitment. So you not only need different strokes for different folks, but it gets into the next concept that you seem to like, which is you also need different strokes for the same folks on different parts of their job. Because what we do is we take a look at competence and commitment and say, if a person is an enthusiastic beginner, they're, they're, they need direction. They need supervision. They need somebody working closely with them. If they're a little disillusioned uh, learner, well, then they need some coaching. They need both direction and support. If they're capable but cautious, you know, I mean, they got the skills, but they'd still need uh, some pats on the back and all. And then finally, self-directed achievers, you can delegate uh, to them. And so with the same person, they could have some goals that they're self-directed achiever, but other goals that they might be an enthusiastic beginner, even a disillusioned learner. And so you have to use what we call different strokes for different folks, but also different strokes for the same folks on different parts of their job. And that's uh, such a powerful concept. People go, duh. You know, when we go and train people in our SL2 model, they say, my God, I wish I had this years ago because I, you know, got into the trap of using the same style with everybody all the time. And it works sometimes and not others. That's right. That's right. We've worked with tens and tens of thousands of leaders over the last 40 years. And, uh, with SL2 and one of our leadership style assessment tools that we use, we have a database of tens upon tens of thousands. And 54% of managers can only comfortably use one leadership style. Yeah. I mean, there are half the leaders out there are one trick ponies, right? They have mm-hmm. one style they're comfortable with and 
you know, the old saying, Wanda, what is it? If, if all you have is a hammer in your toolbox yeah. then everything's a nail, right? Yeah. You just keep pounding that, <laughs> that hammer. And that doesn't work for folks. They're at different stages of development on different goals and tasks. And so the leader has to situationally use different styles. So that's, that's the whole theory behind the different strokes for different folks. All right. You put this in the context of individuals development commitment or their competence and their commitment is the two by two that you do use as situational mm-hmm. leadership too. And that's one way to think about differences between people, but we could also talk about differences in preference. You know, what I want, how I want to be treated, how I want you to guide me, coach me, whatever can be different than what somebody else wants. And then we go to all the variations on diversity that we've been talking about so much lately. There's yet another level of differences. So I love that you put this in a really basic generic form, but to me, the two pieces of advice, different strokes for different folks and different strokes sometimes for the same folks apply in a very broad context, not just in the situational leadership model. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It, It just applies all across the barn. The big thing that's important to remember here too, Wanda, is you don't use your leadership approach to people, you do it with them. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, so when you learn a theory, you say to your people, hey, I, here's something I learned recently. I want to share it with you. And then together, I'd like to decide, how would we like to use this if we would? You know, and also yeah. people really feel that they're part of it. It's we, not me uh, type of leadership. That's what people love. Yeah. I think one of the other simple truths in our book that talks to that broader issue of how you treat people situationally is the simple truth that says there is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a tongue twister, right? There is nothing so unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. And what that's getting at is that you need to treat people ethically and equitably, right, according to their situation and their needs. It's, it's not you can't broad brush people with the same treatment across the board, right, which, you know, I've been guilty of it in the past. Uh, I know most leaders have that saying, I'm being fair because I treat everyone the same, right? And I think that's the path of least resistance, right? Because it's it's easier from the leadership perspective to just say, you know what, I don't want to have to deal with all these one-off situations. So I'm just going to say, here's the blanket rule for everyone, or here's the blanket way I'm going to treat everyone. And that really does a disservice to all of our people, right? Because they're dealing with different life challenges. They come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different heritages, you know, you name it. And uh, we need to be mindful of treating people equitably and ethically given their, their situation. Yeah. It's um, I do agree with you that treat everybody fairly. I treat them all the same. He's lazy. That means I don't actually have to know people. I just treat them the way I want to do it because it's convenient for me. And can, I want to come back on something you said about the, we, not me 
you know, one of the things I've been saying to people lately, uh, especially on this whole diversity and creating an inclusive culture, is why don't you ask people what they want? Like, I'm trying this. Is it working? Would you wish I would yeah. do something different? It, it's such a basic question. Everybody seems to be afraid to ask. Yeah. That's why I think, Wanda, initially, uh, Randy and I wanted this book to be titled, Duh, Why <laughs> Isn't Common Sense Common Practice? Because, you know, duh is the answer. I mean, why, why not talk to your people, see what they want and all, yeah. and uh, for you to assume that you can put yourself in everybody else's shoes when they all come from different cultural backgrounds and racial backgrounds and all. But you say, we're going to work together. How can I help you win? Because I'm, I'm on your side. Yeah. And uh, it's so stupid in organizations that they, uh, there's three parts of managing people's performance, performance planning, day-to-day coaching, and performance evaluation. And when you ask people where they spend their most time, what do they all say? <laughs> evaluation. They're yeah. filling out all these stupid forms on uh, their people, and uh, they have to put them into a normal distribution curve. I say to people, how many of you go out and hire losers? We lost some of our <laughs> worst people last year. We better hire some new losers to fill those slots. No, you either hire winners, you steal from other companies, or people you think potential. And so why wouldn't you want everybody to potentially uh, win? When I was a college professor, I always gave out the final exam the first day of class. And the faculty would say, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm confused as they acted. I thought I was supposed to teach these kids. You are, but don't give them the questions in the final. And I'd say, not am I going to give them the questions in the final. What do you think I'm going to do all semester? I'm going to teach them the answers. So when they get to the final exam, they get A. Life's about getting A. It's not some stupid normal distribution curve. I don't feel very strongly about that. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to agree with you. The amount of time we <clears throat> spend on performance management and nobody's happy at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Even the ones who make it, you know, the A's supposedly are not happy because oh, next year they're not going to make an A again. I, it's just, yeah. and all it says is no one's good enough. And we were right back to catch people doing something right. And all right. Can I have to ask a question? Why, if it's such common sense, is it not common practice? Why do you think people don't do what seems so obvious? Well, the biggest thing we found, Wanda, is the human ego. And you can label that edging God out or everything good outside. But it's when people start to see the world only from their view. And they do it in two ways. One is false pride when they have a more than philosophy. They think they're brighter than and all. The other is fear or self-doubt when they have a less than philosophy, but both of them, they're focusing on themselves and you'll get a kick out of, we started a 12-step Egos Anonymous program, you know, (laughs) where people have to stand up and say, hi, I'm Ken. Everybody goes, hi, Ken. I'm an egomaniac. And the last time my ego got my way, we have companies that do this in their weekly meeting. And we always say, if you can't think of a time when your ego got in your way this last week, you probably lie about other things too. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm not sure I wouldn't want to take that medicine, but I think it'd be a very powerful one to do. Um, <clears throat> it's true. I mean, you can't lead without some degree of ego. Yeah. Um, and I think it gets in the way on a regular basis. I see how that could happen. The key concept, of course, people follow up with is humility and they think that's a weakness. Yeah. But I think it was C.S. Lewis that gets most credit for it. He said, people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. And so, uh, you know, leaders who are really good feel good about themselves, but it's not all about them. 
but they have the confidence now to work with their people, not do it to them. Yeah. Yeah. That um, belief that I am the leader and therefore, A, I'm supposed to know, know better. That's your more than philosophy. Um, I'm supposed to have all the answers, including the strategy and the vision and all those details. And I'm supposed to be smarter and who knows whatever else attached to it is something, well, we all need to grapple with. And it leads you, I think, then to a control mindset as opposed to how do I help everybody win? At the end of the day. All right. So we have talked about catch folks doing something right, different strokes for different folks, different strokes for the same folks. And then I love this next one. Someone goes first. What do you mean? Yeah, that's from the trust section of the book, Wanda. And uh, the simple truth is um, that someone must make the first move to extend trust. Leaders, you go first. Uh, the problem that we've seen is too many leaders think just by virtue of their position or their title that they should be trusted, right? Mm -hmm. that it just mm -hmm. comes with the title. And that's not the case. Leaders have to first extend trust. It's not the follower's job to automatically trust the leader. It's the leader's job to extend trust mm -hmm. to people. Let them prove themselves trustworthy. One of, one of my favorite quotes is from Ernest Hemingway, and he said, the best way to find out if a person is trustworthy is to trust them, right? <laughs> and um, you know, leaders have to <laughs> extend trust, and that allows people to prove themselves trustworthy and reciprocate, and then that, that begins that generative process of building trust in a relationship. So... Leaders, that's our encouragement to you is you've got to take the risk. You've got to extend trust first. Wanda, there's, there's 26 on servant leadership, simple truth, and then 26 on trust. And I kind of took the lead on the servant leader, Randy, on the trust. So that's right. the way that's we break them down. Yeah, this notion of extending trust, I think is something everybody believes they do, like I, my intention is to extend trust, but I can't tell you how many times in a coaching relationship with people, the number one question is, how do I know I can trust my team? And my response has always been, because you trust them. Like you just give them trust. If you don't give them, who's going to perform for you if you're not trusting them? Yeah, like, yeah. Why would I give you my best unless you're trusting me ever? Right, right. It's, it's such I've, a hard concept to get in our control mindset where we believe we got to control quality and risk. That's my job. It's so hard to let go and say, I trust. Right. I have this little sticky note um, on my laptop here, and it says, I will trust you when dot, dot, dot. Uh -huh. And I've had that sitting here for a while, just contemplating that because I, I think it's a challenge for most leaders, right? I think most leaders have that question, even though they haven't, you know, verbalized it or really cognitively gotten a hold of it. It's in their subconscious, like, I will trust you when, right? There's this mm -hmm. conditional aspect of, you know, mm -hmm. I, I want to trust people, but yet I'm afraid, you mm -hmm. know, it's a fear-based thing or whatever. Um but it gets back to that simple truth. Someone has to go first, mm -hmm. right? That's 
Risk is inherent in trust. If there's no risk, there's no need to trust, mm -hmm. right? Um, we don't really have to trust that the sun's going to come up tomorrow because for eons, the sun has been coming up tomorrow, right? Um, we except, like in to except in London. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, the sun is actually up. It just doesn't always make an appearance, right? Behind the clock. Have you to know, today has been a beautiful sunny day in London. So, okay. Some days <laughs> the sun comes up in London. All beautiful. Right. So, That's great. Yeah. Trust is such a fascinating issue in relationships and in, in the leadership context. Yeah. I say to people, you know, people are always asking me, I have this problem with my manager and my manager doesn't trust me. And I say, so do you trust your manager? Because mm -hmm. it, it does go with me. And then I agree with you. Someone needs to go the first and leaders should go first. Okay. Totally agreed on that in terms of extending trust. But you can take any relationship that somebody is struggling with and ask the question of, have you given any degree of trust or are mm -hmm. you withholding judgment? And I promise you that relationship is not going in a good direction. Right. So as scary as it is, it's a cool, really important starting principle to give some degree of trust. Yeah, that's for sure. Great. All right. Now, related to that one, let me ask you my next one, which is number 45. One of my absolute favorites, the opposite of trust is control. So please explain. Yeah. The misconception there is people intuitively think, well, the opposite of trust must be distrust mm -hmm. or mistrust, right? And it's not. The opposite of trust is control. And that's because going back to what we were just saying, trust involves risk. And when we are uncomfortable with risk, our reaction is to control. Right. And this is most evidenced in the workplace in the way communication happens, the mm -hmm. way information is shared. So when you see leaders engaging in control type behavior, they're exemplifying the philosophy of, of you know, you're on a need to know basis, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the time you don't need to know. If you need to know, I'll be sure to tell you. Uh, but when you contrast that with leaders who openly share information, right? They're an open book as much as possible. Uh, they share information about themselves. They're authentic and transparent. They're a little bit vulnerable, right? They share information about the organization. That shows trusting behavior. Um, so whenever you're in a situation where you're finding yourself wanting to exert control, right? Play your cards close to the vest. That should signal to you, ah, there's something with trust going on here, right? Why am I not comfortable trusting in this situation? Um, so that's, it's one of my personal favorites too, Wanda, because it's, there's so many control issues right. that crop up in leadership. I think people hear the word con control, like they hear the word command and control. And mm -hmm. assume I'm not doing that because I know that's bad, quote unquote bad. I've, I've read all the books. I know better than that. And I actually think the opposite is true, that we exert a huge amount of control as leaders, even with the best of intentions. So as someone says, mm -hmm. well, Stephen Covey, in fact, says enlightened command and control, it's still control. And if you put that in the phrase of my job is to control quality, 
My job is to control the output, the timeliness of the output, or my job is to control the risk, which I think most leaders would say, yes, you're right. That is my job. That's ultimately control. And so we just don't stop to think about how much we are trying to control. And I'll give you another example. At the moment, people trying to decide what the back-to-work policy is. And in any environment where uh, what we're seeing is any environment where you tell people the number of days that they will be in the office, you're getting a massive backlash. Even if it's just one, there's a backlash. Why? Because it's seen as controlling behavior. And it is what leaders are trying to do. I want to control the return. I want to control that you return. And this, it is ultimately about control as opposed to trust. So anyway, I, this is one of my favorites. Absolutely, totally one of my favorites. All right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I, it makes me think one, it's linking back to the boundaries discussion we had, right? Like, yeah, there is a certain amount of control that leaders or managers need to have, right? And mm-hmm. that's setting up the boundaries. What's the vision? What's the goal? What's the direction? Right. That's those are the guardrails that we are all mutually agreeing upon that is quote unquote the control mechanism, right? Within that, let's go. Use your brains, right? right. We hired you for your brains and your creativity. Let's let's have a lot of autonomy within those boundaries. Um, it's not the leader's job to micromanage because. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think we lose sight of as leaders is our job is to multiply our influence throughout our team, right? Mm-hmm. It's to replicate our influence. You can't do that by micromanaging and controlling everything. Mm-hmm. One of the key things, Wanda, is is communication and and keeping the the, the channels of communication open so that you say to your uh, uh, people, you know, well, we have a tough decision. Like our son is the president of our company now. And during pandemic, we were down 40 to 50%, you know, and Scott had to sort of say, you know, well, God, here's what we got to do. We need to kind of obviously going to have to downsize, you know, and, and one of the things I was thinking about, some of you all are near retirement age. How, how about you all going first? What do you all think? You know, I mean, but it was a good back and forth <coughs> stuff, even though he had to, <coughs> push and make certain decisions. But what you want to do is constantly communicate uh, to your people, including I. this is one I'm a little worried about, or yeah. this is one that is, is not easy for me. You know, I need your help on it. Right. Well, we're right back to the sort of different strokes for different folks idea too. just at if you just say, look, this one is troubling. I don't want to get this wrong. Give me a little guidance on what will work, what doesn't work, and there's that kind of basis of dialogue. But we don't ask those questions because I think we're ultimately afraid of losing control mm-hmm. is really what I think is driving that one. Okay, this is a perfect place to take a very short break. So my guests today are Ken Blanchard and Randy Connolly. The book we're talking about is The Simple Truths of Leadership. You can learn more at their website, simpletruthsofleadership.com or check out their company, the Ken Blanchard Companies. Um, Because as I've said, 52 simple truths that have stood the test in time, applicable, easy to learn, and a great thing to do one a week if you want to advance your leadership. We're going to take a break. When we be back, I want to come back with the next of my absolute total favorites in the book. We'll be right back.
This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to Out of the Comfort Zone. My guests today are Ken Blanchard and Randy Connolly. The book we're talking about is Simple Truths of Leadership. And as I said before the break, one of the cool things about this book is there are 52 simple truths, one a week. How much better can it be for mastering leadership, for advancing your own leadership development? And furthermore, if you're young and you want to get smarter about leadership, this is something you can do largely without a whole lot of guidance from your manager. It also becomes a really easy thing to ask a mentor. So I read this one example, catch people doing something right. Tell me how you've done that. Tell me how it's worked out in your life. There's a whole conversation that you as an individual can pick up and take this forward without too much else to follow on. But now we talked about um, some of our favorites. Number five, catch people doing something right. Number nine, different strokes for different folks. Number 10, different strokes for the same folks. Number 30, someone goes first, meaning leaders extend trust. Number 45, which is one of my favorites, the opposite of trust is control. And I want to go to my absolute second favorite, which is number 52. Forgiveness is letting go of the hope for a better past. Please explain what you mean and why that works. We intentionally ended the book with that one, Wanda, because... It's such a critical part in restoring trust. Inevitably, we are going to do something to erode trust, right? It's, it's human nature. We're all fallible. We make mistakes. And 
one of the challenges we've seen in our practice with leaders is that oftentimes we hold on to unforgiveness because we think it's lording power over someone, right? Not giving someone something that they desperately want, someone who's harmed us in the past. When the reality is the only person we're harming is ourselves, holding on to unforgiveness. And so if we're going to restore trust when it's been broken, we have to come to grips with the reality that we can't change anything in the past, right? It's, it's over and done with. It's happened. What we can do is change how we approach the future. And if we can um, see ourselves clear to grant forgiveness we're really helping ourselves. You know, we're saying, I'm letting go of all hopes for a better past because I can't control that, but I'm choosing to move forward in a much more healthy, productive way uh, through forgiveness. So especially over the last few years during the pandemic, people have had some rough challenges, right? Personally, um, professionally, the way some organizations have treated their folks, people are holding on to a lot of unforgiveness, you know, and I, I think it's, it's better for all of us if we pursue that path of forgiveness um, and move forward in a, in a better way. Don't you, Ken? What are your thoughts? Yes, and uh, a big part of that, as Randy is implying too, is forgiving yourself because mm-hmm. uh, that's the hardest uh, thing. And, and uh, sometimes you need to go to your people and say, God, I want to apologize for Yesterday at that meeting, I think I kept on interrupting people and I was so excited about my point of view that I didn't listen to you all. And I, I, I apologize for that. And I, I need to, you to know I need to hear from you. And if I'm talking too much, tell me to shut my trap. <laughs> yeah. It's um, the second half of this sentence, letting go of the hope for a better past. Mm-hmm. I think people don't forgive because they don't want to forget mm. because they're afraid to trust again because it might happen again. Yeah. And so it's almost like I'm ensuring a better future because I'm not going to trust anybody again to let that happen to me again. So how, what do you say to those people? Right. I agree with you, Wanda. I think we get twisted up in the forgiving and forgetting part, right? Mm-hmm. We can forgive, which is meaning we are understanding of why something happened. We're choosing to let it go. We don't have to forget. And I think there's a strong argument that you should not forget, right? Because if we forget and keep trusting in that same situation and repeating that behavior, that becomes very dysfunctional, right? And we become a doormat, and it's not healthy for us or the other party. But there's so there's a big difference between forgetting and forgiving. We can all choose to not trust again, right? We all have that choice. I would argue that it leads to a very <laughs> Spartan existence, right? A uh, a lack of joy in life if we choose not to trust again. Um, it's similar to love, right? I mean, we, we all have 
loved and probably had our heart broken in different situations, but what is life without love? What is life without trust, right? We have to take that risk. It goes back to that element of risk and trust. If you're placing your money, your love, your hopes, your future, whatever, in someone else's hands, you're engaging in trust. There's a risk there. I would argue nine times out of 10, that trust is going to be warranted and you'll be better off. Okay. Yeah, as you, as you, Randy says, you know, he and I together have been married, you know, well over 90 years. And so we've learned a lot about asking for forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not married to each other, married to our respective spouses, right? Yeah. Just want to clarify. And forgiveness and apology are really key. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Do that, you know, and then so, uh, although my father told me, Ken, the real key to successful marriage is to learn to say yes, ma'am. <laughs> Your father might not have been wrong, but we won't go there because I want to come back to the whole notion of leadership. I see in a leader who has set the leadership part, so the vision the goals, the values, the direction has set that part. And we so we know what we're trying to achieve. We've got some results orientation. And now they're trying to enable the best in people. That on occasion, somebody is going to let them down. Not deliver what they said they would. I mean, a whole host of ways in which you get let mm-hmm. down as a leader. And if you choose to never forgive that person, then you've written them off is ever being able to perform again. So I get that. All right, now I'm going to flip it on its head. I want to talk about it as an employee who's, you know, not at the top of the heap, kind of somewhere in the bottom barrel of the heap. And you feel that a leader, let's say a leader in particular, did something that was inappropriate. And three years ago, whether it was or it wasn't, and really struggle to forgive that leader and let that leader even apologize or accept apology or recognize that the individual may have had a hand play in what actually happened. What's your response to that individual? Because they're not in a position of power. Right, right. And the power differential plays a huge dynamic in this whole uh, situation. Um, I would... As you were describing that, I was thinking to myself, leaders are people too, <laughs> you know? Yep. I think sometimes we have uh, unrealistic expectations of our leaders that just mm-hmm. by virtue of their mm-hmm. title or position that somehow they're much more smarter, more emotionally intelligent, you know, than, than the average bear, you know? And, and that's not the case. Leaders are people too, and they make mistakes. And so I would hope that regardless of our position in the organization, that we would want to extend the same amount of grace and forgiveness that we would want for ourselves, right? And um, there's that interesting human dynamic that we often judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions, right? Yes. And if we flip that, right, and say, okay, maybe I should really be looking at my leader's intentions and understanding that 
in that situation, their behavior didn't align with their intentions, Mm -hmm. right? Let's, let's deal with that, you know? And so we're starting from a more um, positive point of view, Mm -hmm. right? That I think could get us to that path of forgiveness quicker than if we're just starting from that judgmental point of view that, you know, they don't care about me, right? Their, their behavior clearly shows that, well, maybe their behavior didn't align with their intentions. Right. Right. Or maybe keep, there's more. Well, a key, key concept, a friend of ours, Rick Tate, has always told us is that feedback is the breakfast of champions, you know, and it needs to go both ways. I mean, the leaders need to give their people feedback when maybe they're falling short and saying, how can I help? And then they need to open the door so that other people can give them feedback. Two-way street. It's interesting. We're presuming in this one that the leader actually had the misalignment, but there are also other interpretations that would Mm -hmm. say not necessarily. But I would say to anybody who's struggling with this, the phrase, regardless where your position of power is, forgiveness is letting go of the idea that your past can be different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not going to rewrite the past. You can only rewrite where you're going forward. I, at any rate, that's number 52. And what a great way to end the book. Now, I'm not going to let you quit at that one because there's some really still great stuff in here. And let me go to one of my other favorites. Um, number 15, never assume you know what motivates someone. Yeah. Just uh, ask them. You know, we've talked about that. Is it, you know, you might sort of say to somebody, you know, I got a really good raise for you and all. And maybe money's not a big issue. What they would really love is more responsibility or more opportunity. And you get somebody else who, who they could really use a little extra money and you're giving them more responsibility and you think that. So uh, one of the things that we've instituted, Peter Drucker told me years ago, can nothing good happens by accident, put some structure on it. So one of the concepts that we use with our clients is what we call one-on-ones and we have them meet with each of their direct reports one-on-one for 15 to 30 minutes, at least once every two weeks. So if you met 50, 26 times a year with your people and you schedule a meeting, but they set the agenda, you'd really know what they're thinking about and all that. And and so the more you communicate, the better. People ask me all the time. It's one of the favorite topics that I get called on all the time to either speak about or answer about or do in a coaching session tell me what, how to motivate other people. And, you know, for one, I'm not convinced you can motivate somebody, but you can certainly create conditions where they're more likely to be motivated. But, and then I come back to the same question I started is like, have you asked them? And people say, (laughs) I don't know how to ask. All right. So Ken, how do you ask what motivates somebody? You say to them, what motivates you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you really, you're very honest with people. You know, I, I, th- I think all of us are motivated by different things, and I don't want to act like I'm a mind reader. And so I really would love to know what really excites you and motivates you and see how we can create that as part of your job, because I want you to be bringing your best self every single right. day because you're excited about being here. Um, I think excites what excites you is a really interesting one. Um, we, when people use the word motivation, too many of my clients at least get that attached to either money or promotion or title. Mm-hmm. And those are all extrinsic. And what I think we're talking about here is really understanding the intrinsic. What is it that's the internal excitement to me 
One of my current favorite ones is what's the one thing you want to learn in the next Mm. three months or six months? Um, That also is a great understanding of what's driving somebody beyond just what excites them or what motivates them. Okay. People are motivated, you know, sort of the three basic needs, autonomy, relatedness, and, and competence, right? Mm -hmm. And people are motivated. I agree with you, Wanda. I don't, I think it's sort of a fallacy that leaders think you can motivate someone. People are already motivated. The question is, what is the quality of their motivation, right? What is actually motivating them? And then getting clear on that and then helping stoke that, right? Create the environment, the, the conditions that allow people to tap into what motivates them. Great. Fabulous. All right. Let's do one more before um, we close on this one. And I have like three here that I really want to talk about. I think, um, so I'll just say these for everybody to hear them. It's number 17. It's okay to toot your own horn, which I think a lot of people will be happy to hear. And number 29, self-trust is the secret to success. But the one I want to focus on in number 35, people don't know how much you don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. Yeah. And that some people, that's a very familiar saying to them. Some they they've never heard that before. Um, One of the challenges we've seen is that too many leaders think they're the smartest person in the room, right? Mm -hmm. That all the brains reside in their office. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you should probably go find another room, right? Where you're not the smartest. (laughs) Because that's where you're going to learn something. And leaders, you know, we've often elevated to those positions because we've been really good in our individual contributor roles, right? We know all the answers. We're the smart person in the room. And your job as a leader is not to keep answering those questions and be the smartest in the room. Your job is to build that capacity in all your people. And people really won't care how smart you are, unless they know that you really value them as a person, right? This is where the connected part of trust comes in. Does my leader really have my back? Do they care about me personally? Um, That's where you've got to start. Ken, what 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 would you add to that? No, I, I think you said it all, you know, because I think people want to know that you think enough and you care enough about them to involve them and to think that they can bring their brains to work. Uh, it's so interesting. Uh, the turnover in the country, people don't leave organizations, they leave managers because when they go home at night, they don't feel that good about themselves because they don't feel like they're cared for or uh, involved and in, in all. And so yeah. remember how you treat your people during the day they're going to talk about at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. For good or for bad. All right. I remember one leader recently said um, that the highest compliment he, in this case, had ever gotten was that someone who worked for him's wife came up to him at the annual event party, whatever, and said, my spouse is a better human being, is a better mm. husband, a better father, a better human being from having worked with you. And he thought that that was his highest compliment ever, um, which is quite an interesting statement about that individual's leadership. Um, 
this last one, you know, is, is near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to the heart of this show, out of the comfort zone and to my book, You Can't Know It All. And that notion of we believe that leaders are supposed to know it all, and therefore we take, make it hard to trust people, to enable them, to inspire them, to do all the things that let them know as opposed to we know. Ken and Randy, we've caught, we're out of time. Sadly, it always happens at the end of the show. I feel like I could keep going for forever. I have five more questions I could ask you, but that will be it for today. My guest, Ken Blanchard and Randy Connolly, the book, Simple Truths of Leadership. And this is 52 ideas <laughs> about simple truths that have stood the test of time that are eminently applicable. And you hear the two components of this, which is where we started, the notion of results and relationships. I have to set direction, vision, values, and goals. Those are the guardrails. With a river, without a bank, without some guardrails, is a puddle. And we don't want a puddle. We want something moving forward in a direction. But once that's set, I've got to focus on the relationships, which is the trust half, the servant half, the enabling people half. I don't think it could be said any better than that. Randy and Ken, thanks for being a guest today. Thank you. Great being with you, Wanda. You're the best. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. If you'd like to know how to apply these concepts and more, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.